Well, I want to say hi to everyone here in the sanctuary. Great to see all of you. I want to welcome those of you joining us online this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, we have been looking at the greatest sermon ever preached from the greatest thinker and man who ever lived, Jesus himself. And we have found ourselves in this Sermon on the Mount and in this section of these blessings called the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes are a picture of the good life. This life, this invitation that Jesus is inviting us into. Uh, but this happy life looks upside down from the normal things that we think of. That Jesus says uh, there are these people who are poor in spirit. Those who don't hold themselves in high regard. They are the ones who are inheriting this happy life. It is the gentle in a world driven by power, it is the gentle who will come out on top. And today, I would like to talk to you about the, what some consider the centerpiece of the Beatitudes. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand for God's word this morning and out of reverence to this word and this invitation that Jesus longs to give us of this happy life. Jesus said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is a powerful promise found in this beatitude. They, they who will ever hear this invitation, they will see God. And so how do we take hold of this promise? Well, we have four questions that we will need to consider today. First, what is the heart? Second, why is it so hard to protect? Third, what do we have to uproot? And lastly, how do we do it? What is the heart? Why is it so hard to protect? What do we have to uproot? And then how do we do it? First, what is the heart? In this passage, it says these pure in heart, they will receive this promise. So what is the heart? Well, the Greek word is cardia, which we get our English word cardiac. But the ancient vision of the heart was not so much this organ inside of you, but it was the core center of your personhood. The heart is synonymous with your will. It is the place within you where you make decisions. Ultimately, your heart is your wanter, what you really want deep down in you, what comes from you, what you choose comes from your heart now many people since the enlightenment have told you the the main thing about you the most important thing about you are your thoughts the 17th century philosopher Descartes said I think therefore what I am I think therefore I am now your thoughts and your mind are incredibly important and essential to who you are but they are not the core of who you are St. Augustine said that who you are in your heart is not what you know, it is what do you love? What, what has your affections? What, what motivates you? Um, this is why the heart is so important. Your heart directs your life. Your heart directs your life. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament that the biblical writers encourage the people to pay very, very, very close attention to their heart, to protect it. To, to keep it safe, to treasure it. Because 
It is the core of who you are as a person. The writer of Proverbs says it this way, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above everything you do, guard your heart. Protect it. Keep it safe. Treasure it. But what we find is our heart is pulled and pushed and tossed about. We find ourselves sometimes wanting what we know we should not want, and then at other times not wanting what we know we should. Why is it so hard to protect our heart? Well, that brings us to the second question. Why is it so hard to protect? Well, in this beatitude, we are given this promise, maybe the greatest promise of all, which is the pure in heart will see God. And one of the reasons it is so hard to protect your heart is that your heart and my heart think that we can want what is good in our own strength. Sin has gotten into our hearts and it makes us believe things about ourselves. We will say, hey, really, I'm not that bad, or it was really their fault, or they had it coming, or this is just who I am, and a slew of other things that we will say. But the Bible tells us a much different picture about our hearts. Uh, It says this in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who, who can understand it? The reason the heart is so hard to protect is that we are prone to believing things about ourselves that are not reality, that are not true. Our heart will deceive us. Uh, There's a professor who teaches at Duke University named Dan Ariely, and uh, Dan wrote this phenomenal book uh, that is called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty how we lie to everyone and especially ourselves. And Dan, uh, through his research, was amazed to find how quickly people would cheat, deceive, and lie. And and he he said there are two motivations that every human has within them. Uh, This motivation for selfish gain and and a motivation to avoid pain. And he said these two motivations, they live in conflict with each other. And uh, he, he shares about um, when, when I want something so bad and I'm willing to do anything, including lying, get it, but I'm knowing I'm doing something wrong in the process, how can I avoid the pain that I will feel for wanting something that is good? And Ariely says that we have this creative thing that we do with this tension of feeling this selfish gain and avoiding pain. He, he says this in his book, This is where our amazing cognitive flexibility comes into play with this tension we feel. Thanks to this human skill, as long as I cheat only a little bit, we can benefit from selfish gain and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings. What Ariely calls cognitive flexibility, Jeremiah calls a deceitful heart. He also goes on and he shares a little bit more about this phenomenon, some empirical research that Ariely did in his studies for this book. And this is what he says. 
Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. And it happens mostly the week before final exams and before papers are due. Can you guess which relative is most awfully, mostly dying in these stories? Grandma. <laughs> Grandma is always dying. Uh, in fact, Dr. Mike Adams of Eastern Connecticut State University did some research on this, and he found that grandmothers were 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. <laughs> Even worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in the class are at even a higher risk. <laughs> students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than their non-failing student. Adams found that the most deciding factor for whether grandma lives or grandma dies is actually their grandchild's GPA. <laughs> so if you are a grandma... And you are here today. Please listen, because this is very important. If you hear nothing else from this sermon, please do not let your grandchild go to college. <laughs> Especially if your grandchild is not a good student. It will kill you. These moments of rationalizing happen in our life all the time. When we are driving in our car and there is another driver who makes us angry, we will let them know what we think. We will tell them they are number one but with a different finger. We will honk louder and longer than we need to. We will stare them down, shaking our head, or the best of all, we will yell at them from our car as if they could hear anything that I'm saying. And what will usually happen after the incident is over is we'll say, wow, that person was such a loser. If they weren't such a loser, I wouldn't have had to act that way. From the time the boss comes to you and says, hey, have you finished that project we talked about last week? And we say, yep, I plan to send it over today. Which means I completely forgot and I will get back to my office and pound it out in the next hour and send it off this afternoon and hopefully they won't ask any questions. This is the reason we fudge on resumes, taxes, dating apps, Facebook, and Instagram. As Jeremiah has already told us what Ariely and Adams are telling us as well, the heart is deceitful above all things. And so we'll say to ourselves, surely I'm fine. Surely I will see God. I mean, I'm not like Tom or Kevin or Mary or you name it. What we need is a surgery. Uh, because the things have gotten tethered to our heart, we have to detangle them. And we will need to get really honest about what is in our hearts and what we have to uproot. And so that brings us to our third question. What, what do we have to uproot? In this beatitude, Jesus tells us that the person who would choose to live this kind of life in the kingdom will be pure in heart. Now, the Greek word for pure is katharos. Uh, you hear people talk about having a cathartic experience. It was a cleansing experience. It was a purifying experience. And in fact, most commentators, when they talk about 
this story and what Jesus is saying. He's building his case on an Old Testament psalm, a psalm of David, uh, which says this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a what? A pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol. David tells us uh, that we have to uproot the idols. In fact, every place in the Old Testament that talks about the purity of heart, it is talking about a heart purified from idols. So what is an idol? An idol is something in your life and mine that is usually very, very good, but is the enemy of the best. It is usually something very good that has become our ultimate security. It, it has become something that we live for. And so if your idol is power, your greatest fear is losing. You're not only a competitive person, but you always have to come out on top. If your idol is love, your greatest fear is rejection. You'll gladly lose the game just as long as the relationship stays intact just as long as they continue to think highly of you. If your idol is control, your greatest fear is failure. You will keep your standards for yourself and everyone else so high so that nothing else backfires. Now, love, competition, standards, these are all good things. The problem is when they get into your heart, when they become your identity when they become your security, when they become your source of meaning, they become an idol. I read a story about the Knights Templar. It was this Catholic military order during the Crusades in the 12th century. And before the soldier would go off to battle, they were baptized. But they're not only baptized, they were baptized in full armor. I mean, you can imagine the scene. And as they went into the water to be baptized, they would hold the sword up out of the water as they were baptized, as if to say to God, God, you can have all of my life except this one part. Now, when I was reading this, I was floored. I, I, I mean, I was thinking, how foolish can they be? I mean, who would live that way? And, but then I started to think, we all do that. God, you can have all of me except this Except this one thing. I mean, imagine if we actually starting to get that kind of honesty and we started baptizing people and everyone came forward to be baptized, but they held their iPhone out of the water. They held their business card from their place of work. They held the college that they hope to get into next year. Or some schedule, or some identity, or some dream, or you name it. We have this bent where we say, God, you can have most of my life, just not this. And whatever that is that you are holding out of the water, that is what has to be uprooted. That is what is destroying your soul. And this is what Jesus is inviting you to see. He is telling you the blessed life I am offering you, the life of flourishing, of peace, joy, contentment, and hope, you will not experience that kind of life that I have come to give you 
until we talk about what it is you're holding out of the water. Or to be more specific, what you are holding deep in your heart, deep in the core of who you are as a person. The prophet Ezekiel is is standing and these men from Israel, the people of God, have come to see him about a certain situation. And uh, Ezekiel receives a revelation from God concerning these people. This is what it says. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into what? Their hearts. Their hearts. What do you need to uproot? What has tethered itself to the core of your heart? Because here's the thing, whatever it is, God is trying to free you today. He is saying to you, my child, look at the pressure you are under. The pressure you're putting on yourself to, to achieve, to be loved, to be in control, to get beyond your past, to secure your future. God is saying to you, what a terrible burden you are carrying today. And I think because he is good and because he loves you and because he wants the best for you, he will give you this invitation. He would say to you this morning, if you wanted to, you could step into a different kind of life free of worry, free of striving, free of fear, free from the opinion and approval of others, free from whether the job comes through or the promotion happens, free of the medical report, a life where I am with you and you no longer have to be consumed with outcomes. But, but, you will have to lay down whatever idol you have taken into your heart. That is the only way to experience the kind of life I long to give you. So the question is, how how do we do that? How, how, how do we uproot the thing that has taken hold of our heart? Well, that brings us to our last question. How do we do it? As I mentioned earlier, the heart, uh, the heart and the will in the Bible are essentially the same thing. They differ some in function, but the heart and the will are the core of who you are as a person. You see, a lot of people will, will say uh, in this situation, what you have to do is you just have to try harder and then you will be pure in heart. Try harder to be like Jesus, try harder to obey God, try harder to become a better person, but any addict will tell you, whether it's a substance or some behavior, any addict will tell you that trying harder will not cut it. You see, what we call addictions today, the Bible generally called idols. We've gotten attached to the wrong things. We've taken the wrong stuff into the core of who we are, And what the Bible tells us about our will that has already been confirmed by psychology and people who study personhood is your will, your will was made to surrender to something. Your will was made to surrender to something. Now you can surrender your heart over and be an alcoholic, a rageaholic, a workaholic, a greedaholic, or a shopaholic. But we will have to surrender our will over to something because that is what it means to be human. 
You can continue to surrender your will over to all of these other idols that will gladly take up residence and pay the rent in your heart. Or you can surrender your will to God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, says there are, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. The people who say, thy will be done, or, or my will be done. Uh, thy will, or my will. Je Jesus said it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my apprentice, must deny themselves Take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, Jesus does not see surrender as something that happens one time in your life, but it is something that is continuous. And the more you surrender your heart over to God, the more you will find yourself experiencing this eternal kind of life God longs to give you. Uh, our middle son, Lane, uh, has been in this season of just the creative process of drawing pictures, and uh, he will draw anything under the sun, but one of the main things he loves to draw is pictures of our family. And, and these pictures, I think, because of his creative license, are drawn completely out of proportion. Uh, the, the, our heads in, in these pictures are enormous uh, and they're attached to these tiny, tiny, tiny little bodies. And, and then he came one time to show me a picture and he, he showed it and I said, oh buddy, who is that? And he said, daddy, that's you. And uh, I noticed the top of the head, it had three hairs. <laughs> and so I really couldn't even listen to him explain the picture beyond that point because in my head I'm thinking, come on, dude, I have way more than three Uh, but uh, Lane uh, brought this one picture to me uh, last spring, uh, which you, you remember those two days in Michigan spring, right? It's a slow burn. You'll get it. <laughs> Lane, Lane brought this picture to me. It's, it's the picture that I think has been speaking to me the most over these past few months. Lane brought this picture to me, and it's a picture of him and me, and we're holding hands. Uh, but, but in this picture, uh, because of Lane's creative license uh, and creativity, I have gigantic hands. Uh, my, my hands are the size of my entire body. And, and I can't even see Lane's hand because it has been engulfed into my hand. And, and Lane hands me this picture, and then he runs off to do what other five-year-old boys do. And I'm sitting there looking at this picture. And in the silence of that room, looking at that picture, I began to be choked up because I heard God saying to me, Tyler, you don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. You don't have to keep carrying this burden. You could simply surrender your heart to me. Surrender your heart into my hands and I will keep you safe. This morning, friends, God longs this for you.
He is a very, very good God with very big hands. And he will keep you safe when nothing else will. Maybe you're here and you have never surrendered your heart to this God. I encourage you to do that today. Maybe you're here and your life has some addiction that is consuming you. Maybe there's something that you've been holding out of the water saying, God, you can have all of me, just not this. And God says to you this morning, surrender your heart to me. Follow Jesus and you shall see God. You shall see the life that has always been yours and the life that I've always longed to give you. Let's pray. And so, Father, this morning, for those praying for the first time, for those praying for the first time in a really long time, or those who have already prayed this prayer this morning, we surrender our hearts into your very big hands, seeking to follow Jesus with our lives, knowing that you will set us free, knowing that you will keep us safe, and in the end, knowing we will see God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And the church said, amen, amen.